Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm Liam Bailey. I'm Head of Research at Knight Frank. So over the last two episodes of the Intelligence Talks podcast, we've taken a look at the fortunes of the UK and global housing markets. And both of those discussions revolved, unsurprisingly, uh, around the impact of rising inflation and interest rates on market demand and values. This week, we're going to shift our focus into the rural property arena, and we're going to take a look at the UK farmland market. Now, this is an asset class full of huge opportunities, but facing equally huge shifts in the financial, economic and policy landscape. So to help us make sense of the key themes at play in this market, I'm joined by two experts. Firstly, Andrew Shirley, a man with the perfect CV for this discussion, former agronomist, former land and property editor of Farmers Weekly, and now Knight Frank's head of rural research. So welcome to Andrew. Hi, Liam. Great to be with you. And I'm also joined by Jess Waddington, partner in Knight Frank's Oxfordshire Rural Consultancy team, working with farmers and landowners advising on their land management strategies. So welcome to Jess. Hello, delighted to be with you today. Brilliant. So let's start with you, Andrew. Uh, You've just published your latest update on UK farmland values. In a nutshell, Andrew, what's happening right now to land prices across the country? What we're seeing is farmland outperforming pretty much every other traditional asset class in the UK. And according to our farmland index, land values increased by 13% over the past 12 months. So pretty strong performance in the context of what we're seeing um, politically and economically at the moment. And just in terms of the outlook at the moment, where you see land values going over the, over the course of the next few months, is that, a, again, positive? You've got price rises factored in? I think so, because there's very little supply at the moment and an awful lot of demand from an awful lot of different types of buyer. And we're not seeing any particular shifts in that changing soon. So I think the um, the equilibrium between supply and demand is going to sort of stay with the um, demand sector, really. Jess, I mentioned at the beginning that we've been talking about the UK housing market and global housing markets. And the story there is slightly different. Pressures are are building at the moment in terms of affordability because of the way that debt costs have been rising. But in your experience and, and the way you're looking at the market right now, are you seeing that farmland is being impacted by higher debt costs or is it is it more immune than other assets? I think it is more immune. It's very specific to the type of people that are buying that land. Um, Often it's not first-time farmers buying the land. It's usually people wanting to build their existing estate or portfolio. You know, the the classic scenario of a field comes up on on the side of your holding and you decide to take the punt and, and buy that. So we are seeing that there is still very much the demand there. The UK also isn't getting any bigger, which I suspect is a theme you you see a lot on this podcast. And therefore, when those opportunities come up to buy, people do often stretch themselves to to make sure that they can secure that purchase. So just exploring that a little bit more detail, Andrew, uh, I think I'm right in thinking that the supply of land for sale has been dropping over not just years, but actually decades. So actually people looking to get into the agricultural land market is more difficult now than it was in, in previous years. I mean, that, that's certainly true, Liam. And since I, well, when I was at Farmers Weekly over 20 years ago, there was very little land being sold then. And we've, we've actually seen that availability decrease year on year, foot and mouth, Brexit, COVID. They've all added to that just reasons for people not to, 
not to sell. So at the moment, we're seeing under 100,000 acres come on the market each year publicly. So that's very little land um, for the wide variety of buyers out there to, to get their teeth into. Coming back to you, Jess, um, that lack of supply, I guess, is one reason why I suppose you know some of our listeners may be surprised to, to see how healthy the land market is compared to other property assets at the moment. But that lack of supply is, I guess, a key reason for your confidence about the sector. Yes, I think so. It's the lack of supply. And also, if you're looking at the rest of the uncertainty in the world, the UK is still seen as a relatively safe place and land is a very safe asset to invest in. So I think those people that have got the money to be able to invest and especially those with um, sort of rollover money that they need to to be able to invest within the time limits, it's seen as a really good opportunity for people to invest in. And just in terms of those buyers, Andrew, your research, your data, who are the buyers? Who's, who's actually making up the market? Well, first of all, we've got tax-driven buyers. So people who've sold land, offer an infrastructure project like HS2 or for housing, if they want to avoid paying capital gains on the um, profits from selling that land, they need to buy more farmland. So they're very much driven by tax and they have a certain amount of time in which to spend that money. They don't have to borrow any money to do it. So, you know, they are literally spending money to avoid tax. So they're there. And also what we're seeing increasingly is these environmental buyers. So these are either very wealthy people who want to buy a farm or estate, perhaps to rewild it, to create um, wildlife habitats, or you've got investor-type environmental buyers. So they might want to buy land to create carbon credits that they can sell off to a fund. So we've got this wide range of environmental buyers, We've got the tax-driven buyers, but in the middle, we've also got farmers who are optimistic about the future, very efficient farmers, and they would like to take on more land. Okay, so lots of different reasons to to purchase land, which obviously is in, leading to increases in price over time. Uh, Jess, let's go back to basics. Uh, imagine that I'm a, uh, a farmer. I want to buy some land and I want to do something traditional. I want to grow some crops. I want to, I want to farm some animals. Do the economics stack up at £8,000 plus an acre? I think our recent farmland market for the for the last quarter is 8300 and that is a lot of money to pay if you're looking to do traditional farming practices on it. Your yields are traditionally low, although we have seen a really good spike in the market from increased grain prices, which is uh, caused by the war in Ukraine. However, um, once you get a spike in the grain prices, you've also got a real spike in inputs. And we are probably going to find that although budgets are looking healthy, if those inputs continue to rise, you could be left with very little profit margin. And if I'm an investor and I, I'm buying land and I want to rent it to, to someone else to farm it, I mean, if I'm paying £8,300 an acre, what am I likely to be receiving in rent for the land? That is a very good question, Liam. Uh, one that I'd have to caveat by saying that I work in the southeast and not in the sort of east of the country where you've got the sort of very good quality soils. We are seeing, because I think really the scarcity of the of land that's coming to the rental market is probably significantly lower than that of the sales market. And often people are really driven when those opportunities come up to rent the land to provide a bid and put their tender forwards. And they're often competitive with that. And you would probably expect to see, I mean, this year we've seen between sort of 135 to 170 an acre that's being offered, often sometimes for sort of one to three year FBTs, which is really not a very long time if you're wanting to invest in the land. So we are seeing an increase in, in people's sort of putting their hands in their pockets for that rent. And just to put some context around that, let's say, I don't know, three or four years ago, where would those rents have been? Is, is that a significant increase? 
It's not necessarily a significant increase over the last couple of years, but I think the crucial point is the fact that your basic payment scheme subsidy is significantly reducing. So previously you might have been offering at that level, but you had quite a um, a fair chunk of that being your basic payment scheme payments. The fact that that's going and people are still offering at that level, that I think is the really interesting point. Okay, brilliant. That, that brings me on to a potentially huge area of discussion. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned the basic payment scheme. I suppose that's the old EU scheme, which is still kind of running on uh, at the moment. Andrew, just really briefly, how is that scheme changing or what, what's the, the kind of the outlook for the UK's version of that scheme? Well, I think it's worth pointing out that when you look at the total income from farming in the UK, 75% of that income in certain years came from those EU subsidies. So there are a massive, massive chunk of farm farm incomes. But what the government is doing now is taking payments away from this area-based system and positioning them more around the environment. So if farmers want to get paid, they have to deliver environmental goods. So whether that's increasing biodiversity, flood mitigation or larger landscape type schemes. All the money available now for farming is geared around these environmental benefits. And obviously, many of those are geared towards hitting our net zero targets and climate change mitigation. And that new scheme, uh, or the potential scheme, this is the environmental land management scheme that's coming into play. Yes, it it is supposed to be coming into play. But obviously, we have all seen the um, sort of press reports that the government is planning to water down the environmental land management scheme. Andrew, just digging into the um, environmental land management scheme in a bit more detail, there was a general, I think, consensus that we were moving in the direction that you have just touched on, a shift towards environmental benefits to be delivered uh, in return for payments. But there's been some debate and some kind of concern, I think, in the last few weeks about the direction of travel. Do you want to just touch on that for us? Well, around the time of the mini-budget, as if um, List Trust didn't have enough problems, there was a a leak coming out of DEFRA that suggested they were less committed to the environmental land management scheme than they were before. But at the moment, it's all conjecture. DEFRA has issued a number of statements saying they are committed to the environment, they are still committed to their net zero targets, and they have promised an update later in October. So we, we await to see what actually is going to transpire. And just for your clients, I guess they're planning or they're, you know, they're thinking about their future strategy for their land. This type of uncertainty, I, I would guess, is not particularly helpful. Definitely not. Uncertainty is a theme that we've been working with with our clients for a long time now. It's very difficult when people are setting strategies and setting their business plans to have such uncertainty in the market. And it's not only uncertainty over the future of the Elms payments, which they haven't actually released all the details yet. So you're working towards what you think might be happening, but actually that hasn't been confirmed or issued by by DEFRA. And also you're having to deal with uncertainty in the rest of the market. We've touched on grain prices and input prices, but when you've also got employment, you've got the war in, in Ukraine, you've got the after effects of the pandemic with more people wanting to work from home. Those are all things that impact the future estate strategy. And actually what our estates need is a little bit of government certainty, global certainty to allow us to really make strides in the future. Just drawing those strands together, there does seem to be some tension between the government's vision for how we should be using our agricultural land, whether it's for maximising food production or energy production or even delivering environmental benefits. But how do those strands play out in your 
clients' strategies when they're, when they're thinking about how they're going to use their land? What do they look to prioritise? But I think every estate is different. Every landowner has different objectives. But I think an overarching view of, of everyone I work with is that they want to be doing the right thing. Often people see themselves as custodians of the estate for the future generations. And a big part of that is actually preserving something that's in a better state to hand on to future generations, um, a better state, be that financially or environmentally. The environment is playing a big part in, in how we farm. We're looking at different farming practices, be they min-till, ways to improve the soils, um, types of crops. But I think that the war in Ukraine has really brought round the idea of food security and where we have land that may be less productive, that is the type of land that we need to be using to promote our environmental benefits and, and making good use of that. And I think on the energy point, we've all in our homes seen increasing bills uh, for energy and electricity and gas. But on farms, that hasn't had, uh, until the recent announcement by Liz Truss, we haven't seen any cap on commercial electricity and gas prices. So farms that are drying grain, for example, farms that are using electricity for livestock production uh, or heat, uh, we're really seeing an impact there. And I think that more estates are going to be focused on how they can procure that energy how they can produce it themselves, if possible, and that might be through renewable sources. I would love to see solar on every single farm building in the country and every single shed along the side of uh, motorways. But really, we should be focusing on that. At the moment, battery storage is a really, really expensive option. The technology is there, but it is it is an expensive option. But actually, where you've got fluctuations in the market, is it worth investing now in technology that will be able to stop those fluctuations in the future and therefore add some certainty to your business in a time where things are very uncertain? Andrew, you've been tracking agricultural markets for a long time. Uh, have you ever seen a period when we wanted so much from our land? I think it's fair to say that's absolutely right. As you said, we've got energy, we've got food production, we've got environmental benefits. Also, people are starting to look at how land could help people's mental health through the idea of green prescribing, getting people out into the countryside rather than um, onto drugs. So the countryside does have to do a lot. But what I think we should emphasise is that the, the debate doesn't need to be polarised. The countryside isn't going to deliver one thing or another. If you look at the UK countryside, it's highly diverse. And actually, most of the food produced in this country comes from quite a small area of the farmland. So there is plenty of room to do all of these sorts of things. It's just a shame that the debate has become so uninformed, and it's either one thing or the other. Okay, I'm going to put you both on the spot to end with. Uh, Andrew, £8,300 an acre average uh, in your survey for um, UK agricultural values. I think you mentioned in your survey that you think we are close to uh, surpassing the previous peak just before the Brexit vote, and we may well reach record values for agricultural land in the UK very soon. But if you just cast your mind ahead to this time next year, do you think that values will be higher than they are now? I think we could easily be nudging an average of £10,000 an acre. In that time period? Yes. Well, I have to agree with Andrew, but I think that as we have so many competing interests for land, there's so many different and diverse types of buyers, and therefore something that's valuable to one person is valued in a different way to somebody else. And I think that that really does begin to see a very upward trend in our land market. Brilliant. Okay, this is a really positive story now for investors listening into this podcast. So let's go a little bit more granular. Which area of the country are you most excited about or interested in, in terms of the potential for, for growth? 
Well, working in the southeast, I'm always going to say that the southeast is going to be a very good potential growth area. But really, where I think we're going to see it is is when the government give more detail on the environmental land management schemes, when the government give more detail on natural capital, biodiversity, net gain, carbon capture. All of those opportunities give landowners and farmers a way to monetize the future that isn't just necessarily farming and, and, and cereal production or livestock production. I think farmers are going to have to be a lot more savvy about the type of farming that they do. And actually, for some farmers, there'll be difficult conversations coming up, uh, and especially for tenant farmers, where they have declining BPS income, and which is going to have a really big impact on their farm profits. And they need to be looking at other opportunities. And actually, sometimes in those situations where you've got underproductive land, still farming cereals or farming livestock, that is the type of land that you should be turning over to nature, using for environmental benefits. But that is very difficult in our current landlord and tenant practices. Thank you. And Andrew, any final tips for investors considering this sector? Look carefully at land types. Often it's the land that's traditionally been undervalued, um, sort of poor quality livestock land that might have the um, biggest opportunities for tree planting or carbon mitigation. But perhaps think about entirely new income streams. A lot more of the UK is now suitable for growing vineyards. We're actually producing some amazing English wine now. French champagne houses are even buying tracts of land in the UK to grow grapes. So think outside of the box. Look at all of the different things that you can use land for. Thank you very much, Andrew and Jess. That's been hugely informative. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Liam. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much for having us. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note that goes out each Monday, Wednesday and Friday or any one of our dedicated sector-focused newsletters. See our show notes for more details and please subscribe to Intelligence Talks wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to this week's episode.